0: cap, and then we'll get into the text. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together. Fill us with your spirit, God. Teach us as we look at some pros and cons um, and things that took place in the early church, negative and positive things. Lord, I pray that you would uh, convict us if we can identify with any of this negative stuff. Lord, but you'd also encourage us if we can uh, identify Uh, with some of this positive stuff. Lord, we know you love us and you bring conviction to challenge us to grow deeper in our relationship with you. And you also are a good father that encourages us uh, when we're on the right path. God, so I pray that you would make those things clear uh, as far as where we stand in our relationship with you, what we need to work on, what we're doing right. God, that that those things would uh, be very clear as we focus on some of these topics throughout this text. Uh, So we ask again that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so bringing it all the way back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus, he promised the disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we see that Spirit, uh, the, the promise fulfilled, the Holy Spirit was sent uh, by the Lord, came upon the disciples. We see Peter preach this powerful message, and 3,000 people get saved. Then Acts chapter 2 ends, in verse 43 specifically, uh, we see Luke talk about these signs and wonders and miracles that the apostles performed. Well, he gives us an example of one of those wonders or miracles in Acts chapter 3 where we see this man who was lame, his entire life was sitting outside of the gate of the temple, specifically the gate called Beautiful, and he has this encounter with Peter and John, and Peter and John aren't able to provide for him financially, but what they do do is they basically heal him in the name of jesus and this man is able to stand up in fact he leaps up he's never walked in his entire life and now he's leaping around it was grace upon grace but the lord didn't just heal this man for this man's sake he healed this man for everyone that was there to witness this miracle he healed him for their sake as well he used this miracle as a means to get the attention of the multitude of the masses so that they would recognize Recognize the power of God and respond to the gospel of God and we see Peter, he preaches the gospel and many more get saved. Well, this miracle and these people get getting saved caused some unwanted attention. And we see that in Acts chapter 4, as the Sanhedrin and some of the religious leaders, they imprison Peter and John and threaten them and tell them, hey, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. This isn't going to fly. This isn't going to end well for you. But Peter and John basically tell them, hey, we can't help but preach of the things we've seen and we've heard. We're going to continue preaching the gospel. Okay, we can't stop it. You can try to stop it, but we can't stop ourselves from doing this. This is what Jesus told us to do. So then they get with their buddies, the church, their companions, and they pray. Why? Because they know or knew that they were going to need More boldness to continue to endure the future hardships. They knew that the Sanhedrin meant what they said. That they were going to persecute them if they kept preaching the gospel. So the disciples know that persecution is right around the corner. So they pray for the strength to endure the trial. They pray for the boldness to preach the gospel despite the consequences. As we'll finish Acts chapter 4 and enter into Acts chapter 5, we see that all these things that are happening in the early church is inspiring more and more unity in the church. But what we'll also see is the enemy constantly coming against the church. He does it through the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He's going to do it through Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. He's going to do it through religious leaders at the end of Acts chapter 5. And we see the enemy is truly at work here. What the enemy is attempting to do is destroy the early church. But while the enemy is purposing to destroy the early church, God is using those things to build up the early church. This is why this teaching is titled The Enemy's Destruction and the Spirit's Edification. The Enemy's Destruction and the Spirit's Edification. We see the enemy's attempts to destroy the church both inwardly and outwardly but we'll also see God use these attempts to ultimately build up the church. And this is a truth that we see in this text. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who are called by God, to those who love God. He truly makes all things work together for the good those that are his and we'll see these devastating experiences experiences that could possibly cause division that could possibly cause destruction god uses that to strengthen the early church and build up the early church if you would with me acts chapter 4 verse 32 now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul neither did anyone say any of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also called named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having, laid, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see what's happening despite the persecution from the Sanhedrin. The church is actually growing closer together. They're uniting even more. It says they were of one heart and one soul. The Spirit continues to do this work of unification. Well, if you recall... This was a prayer that Jesus prayed, right? In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, I I pray that they, being the disciples and the church as a whole, that they would be one just as we are one. I pray that there would be a oneness. I pray that there would be unity. See, the church is supposed to operate as one unit. There are many members, but we're called to operate as one body. That's what Paul clarifies in First Corinthians chapter 12. See, there was a problem in the church in Corinth The people were getting consumed with different spiritual gifts and they had this mentality that certain gifts were better than others. If you had a gift of prophecy or apostle or teacher or evangelist, you had a greater gift than the person who had service or administration or did some of those things behind the scenes. And Paul makes it clear that this simply isn't true. Okay. We're all part of one body striving towards accomplishing one goal. And he says this in first Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact that body is not one member, but many. It's unity in diversity. We're called to be one. We're called to be one unit. Yes, there are many members, but we're called to operate as one body, as if we were one member, if you will. See, God tells us that we're a part of something bigger. Okay, We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of something bigger than our jobs, our occupations, even our family life. We're a part of this vast, diverse body of Christ. Yeah, we're a part, but what part? What part do you play? Are you the hand? Are you the foot? Are you the backbone? Are you the mouthpiece? These are some of the illustrations that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to understand how the body functions, okay? I'm limited if I have one hand. I'm limited if I can't talk. I'm limited if I don't have eyes or ears. And that's what he's saying. When the body's not operating as a whole, the body is limited because you're not using your whole body. So when there's people in the church that aren't being part of the body, we're limiting what the body could actually do, what we could accomplish. If we're a church without ears, what's going to happen? If we're a church that can't speak, or a church without a backbone, or a church without hands or feet, what kind of church is it? It's a church that's missing a part. It's a church that's missing members. More accurately, it's usually the members just don't know what part they play in the body. I I don't know what I am. I don't know if I'm a hand or a mouth or a foot. I don't know what role I'm supposed to play. Maybe I, I, I believe you that I'm called to be part of something bigger and I'm called to be a part of the church and operate church. I just don't know what I'm called to do. Well, I'd love to help you with that personally. We have spiritual gift tests and other means to help you figure out what. Your spiritual gifts are what part you're called to play in the body. But we see this truth in Scripture. Church is not just a place we go. It's something we're a part of. Something we're a part of. The Church in the Bible wasn't just a place that they went to on Sundays. It wasn't a building. It was the people. It was a body. It was a unit. This is what we see in the early church. They were beginning to understand what part they played. In this unification process. But it says. I want to go back to verse 33. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So they're operating as a unit for a specific purpose. That specific purpose being getting the gospel out. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That was their primary purpose. And it says they were able to do this because of great power. They were empowered to do this. The Holy Spirit empowered them to preach the gospel. But it also says great grace was upon them all. See, great grace was the motiva- motivational factor behind which why they shared the gospel. It was the grace of God that compelled them to share the gospel. It wasn't something like Jesus gave us the great commission and now we have to go share the gospel with people. no. It was the grace of God that motivated them. It was the love of God that motivated them. They didn't think of sharing the gospel as a a burden or as an obligation. They saw it as a privilege. By the grace of God, we're able to share the gospel. That's an amazing privilege. That's a huge honor. And the disciples got this. The great grace was upon them all. They were sharing the gospel with everyone they came in contact with. Then we're introduced in verse 36 to this man named Barnabas. This is our first introduction to Barnabas. Barnabas would later become a pillar in the church. We see him mainly function as a missionary. He's also referred to as the son of encouragement. Why? Because he encouraged people a lot, right? But I look at Barnabas kind of as the glue that hold, held the early apostles together. Why do I say that? Well, we'll see later on. Uh, once Paul got converted, the apostles wanted nothing to do with him. But thanks to Barnabas, uh, he was able to bring Paul in and convince the people, hey, we need to give this guy a chance. I think his story is legit. I think it lines up. So without Barnabas, who knows what have would have happened to Paul the Apostle? So Barnabas, in this first introduction, we see this guy is The real deal. He's a full-fledged believer. He had a plot of land. He sold it and gave the income to the early church. He wasn't doing this to appear spiritual. He was doing this as sincere, in sincerity of heart. He was so grateful for the grace of God that was bestowed on him. He recognized, I want to, I want to give God my all. I want to give him everything. And I have, I have this piece of land that I could give him. Maybe that will help someone else who's in need. And it absolutely did. In contrast, we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, But, that contrast word, but, in contrast to what Barnabas did, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So... Most likely, the reason why Ananias and Sapphira did this is because they saw how the early church responded to Barnabas. When they saw Barnabas give all that he had, the early church was like, Praise God, man! You're you're a a real brother. You're a real believer. Now we can help a bunch of the poor people in Jerusalem, and they probably saw that. They're like, I want that respect. I want that honor. I want them to look at me like they look at Barnabas. So they sell their land, attempt to do the same thing, but it says they kept pat- back part of the proceeds. They didn't give everything. They appeared to give everything. But they held a piece back. What they were doing, Peter says, was deceiving the Holy Spirit and deceiving the early church. It's point number one. The Holy Spirit despises deceit. The Holy Spirit despises deceit. See, Ananias and Sapphira are playing the hypocrite. Their form of deceit is to convince people that they're giving God more than they actually are. Are you pretending to give God more than you actually are? The Bible addresses this on several occasions. One being in Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament, just before Matthew. God addresses the priests who are doing just that, pretending to give more than they actually were. And he says in Malachi chapter one, verse seven, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts, but now entreat God's favor That he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Basically what was happening was the, the priests, they were called to sacrifice unblemished animals. Lambs, calves, whatever the animal was. They were called to sacrifice the best of what they had. And what they were sacrificing was the worst, the least of what they had. We're going to sacrifice the thing that we don't really care about. We're going to sacrifice the blind. We're going to sacrifice the lame. We're going to sacrifice the diseased. They're providing sacrifices for the Lord, but it's half-hearted. It's not a sacrifice that honors God. As David says, I'm not going to sacrifice anything to the Lord. that doesn't cost me something. If I'm going to say I'm sacrificing the Lord, it's going to be a legitimate sacrifice. I'm not just giving God my leftovers. That's what they were doing. I'm giving God my leftovers. I'm giving God the things that I don't really care about. I'll give God my time during this time because I don't really care about that time. I don't really do anything important that time. I'll give God This portion of my life, but I won't give God this other portion of my life. We're essentially saying to God, you don't deserve to have a a feast with me, a meal with me. You don't deserve for me to give you my all. You only deserve my leftovers. You deserve my doggy bag. You deserve the scraps. What does that say to a king? And he is a king. He's a great king. And as a great king, as the great king, he deserves our all. Have you been giving your all to Christ? Or have you not? Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't giving their all to Christ. They were just giving a little bit. They were half in and half out. And they thought that they were getting over on them. They thought they were deceiving the Lord. They thought they were deceiving the church, but they weren't deceiving anyone. Peter realized because of the Holy Spirit... That they weren't being honest, they weren't being sincere, they were appearing to be one thing, but they were actually something entirely different. See, when we don't give God our all, we're robbing God. We are. When we don't give God our all, we're robbing Him. Why? Because it's all God's. Everything in this world is God's. Our lives, our family, our possessions, it's all God's. That's what the Bible teaches us. So when we don't give Him our all, it says we're robbing Him. How do we rob them? Well, we can all rob them in many different ways. Maybe it's, it's it's effort. I'm being apathetic in my Christian walk. I'm not doing the things God's asking me to do. Maybe it's energy. I just don't really have the energy to do the things that God's asking me to do. I'm not going to put forth the energy that God's asking me to do. I'll put forth the energy to the things that I want to do and I like to do, but not the things that God wants me to do and likes me to do. It could be money. The Bible says... We're robbing God when we don't give back to God. That's in Malachi 2, specifically chapter 3. He says that's one of the things he corrects them with. Not only are you are you giving me the least of what you have and providing these lame, diseased, blind sheep to sacrifice to me, a, a sacrifice that I won't accept. You're not giving back to me. I've given you so much and you're not giving back to me. See, we can rob the Lord in many different ways could be integrity. The Lord's asking us to be honest about something, and, and we're choosing not to be. Point is, maybe you've been robbing God in some capacity lately. The good news is that there's a chance to turn from that. You know, each and every day, it says His mercies are new every day, which means that we have each and every day another opportunity to give God our all. If I didn't do it yesterday, I can do it today, okay? Today is a new chance to give God my all. If I rob God of time or of something in the past, at least I can give Him my all today. And you know what happens? When we give the Lord our all, He takes notice. And He blesses us. Let me show you. In Mark chapter 12, in Mark chapter 12, you see this awesome story about His widow who had next to nothing. Jesus is going to use this widow to get across a powerful message. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many were rich, put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Literally, she gave God everything. It's like giving God your whole paycheck. Like she gave him everything. It wasn't even a tithe. It was, God, I'm going to give you my all. These two mites. Whatever, they're nothing compared to what you can do in my life. And I know you can provide way more than two mites for me. And Jesus says she only gave two mites, meaning she probably gave less than everybody else. But she actually gave more than everyone else. Why? Because the Lord's not worried about money. Okay, He's not worried about finances. He's worried about our hearts. And that's the message that Jesus was trying to get across. This woman gave more because she put her whole heart into it. She put every ounce of herself into it. She gave God every single thing she had. That's why she's given more. He says, these guys, yeah, that's good. They had a lot of money. They gave out of their abundance, but they didn't give as much as this woman. See, this woman, she didn't have much, but she gave it her all. And that's what the Lord asks each and every one of us to, 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 to do. It doesn't matter what we have. He says, just, just, just give me your all. And in this case, it doesn't mean Jesus isn't saying, give me all your money, okay? That's not what the Lord is trying to get get across. He's he's saying, give me all your heart. Give me all your heart. That's the primary thing that I'm focused on. So Peter responds to Ananias and Sapphira. And he says in verse 4, I'll reread it. While it remained, was it not your own? He's speaking of the land that they sold. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter points out the foolishness of their sin. <laughs> Nobody told you that you had to give up all your land. Nobody told you you had to sell your land and give the church all the money you made from them. This is a choice that you made. Like, we didn't come to you, knock on the door, hey, pay up. Okay, everybody that's selling their land has to give back. to the church. That's not what they were doing. He said, this was a, a decision that you made that you were going to sell your land and give it to the church But then you decided you weren't going to give it all. You decided you were going to lie and say you gave it all, but you actually didn't give it all. We see the hypocrisy. They didn't want to give it their all. They didn't want to give God their all. They wanted the church to think that they were giving God their all. Again, the sin of hypocrisy. So he tells them, you have not lied to men, but to God. Well, they did lie to Manx, they lied to Peter, but but Peter's saying, no, 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 way more significant than that is that you lied to God. He says you lied to the Holy Spirit, and because you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is obviously God. This is one of the primary passages that we get the divinity of the Holy Spirit from as well as others. Don't have the time to, to get into all of that. Acts chapter 5, verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So we see Ananias and Sapphira, they, they die. Okay, now, was it because of Peter that they died? I don't believe so. We don't see that like Peter cursed them to death. Because you lied to the Spirit, you're going to die. Okay, we've seen that happen in, in other passages, but it's not happening here. I believe it was an act of judgment on God's part. Like the Holy Spirit... Slayed him like the Holy Spirit took him out. He says, this is the standard that I'm setting in the early church. And if you guys aren't living by that standard, then you can't be a part of the early church. Or at least you can't be alive anymore to see what happens in the early church. So not only Ananias dies, Sapphira dies as well. Why did they die? Well, they died because of their deceit. Now, they could have had heart attacks. It could have been like, oh my gosh, I was found out but dead. Okay, we don't know exactly how it happened, okay? But uh, it's likely that the Lord had something to do with this. This was an act of judgment. Why? Because it says that the fear of the Lord was produced in the people. They recognized that God was behind this. Okay, so that's why we believe that God had something to do with this. Now, the questions always posed uh, were Ananias and Sapphira saved, okay? We don't know. There's no way for us to know for sure. You can look at that and go, man, well, they deceive like that and they lie to the Holy Spirit. They can't be saved. But then you'd have to take that and say, if you've ever deceived as a believer, then you're not saved. Okay, I've lied before. All right. I hope that it's not the truth that, okay, if you lie one time, then then you're not going to be saved, even as a believer. Okay, so we see Ananias and Sapphira, they deceive and they die. Now, we don't know, again, if they were saved or if if they weren't saved, whatever the case may be. But there is a truth in Scripture that we need to understand that's important now and for things later on that are going to come up. That there's a sin as a believer that leads to death. As a believer, there's a place that we can go, a sin that we can commit that God just says, I'm going to take you out. Let me show you. It's 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter five. First John chapter five or sixteen says this. If anyone sees his brother, when he says brother, he's referring to the church. Okay. if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So what he's saying is, there's sin that leads to death, and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. Basically, sin that leads to death is this. You do something, or you're living a lifestyle that God just says, hey, you're going to cause more destruction than good. You're going to cause more division than unity. I just got to take you out, okay? I'm going to deliver you by taking you up. And now, you don't get to spend the rest of your life racking up rewards in heaven and crowns. You get the rewards that you earn, but... Your life is over, okay? So there are sins that believers can commit that God says, okay, I just got to take you away. You're you're causing too much destruction in the body of Christ. In fact, Tim, my friend, that's a missionary in Columbia that we're going to go see. It's a crazy story. It's a tragic story, but it's a true story. Um, When I was talking to him last week, uh, he, uh, he told me he was here actually in July visiting Pastor Chet at Coast Hill's uh and and as he was on his way to the airport in july pastor chet said to him prophetically he said your dad's going to die because of the sin in his life his dad accepted the lord in the past but his dad hadn't truly repented of certain things and he was living a lifestyle that wasn't honoring to the lord and pc said your dad is going to die because of his sin a month later his dad got diagnosed with cancer a month later he was dead so we see there is a sin that leads to death. Now was his uh, Tim's dad saved? I actually believe that he was. I actually believe that he was saved. I think it was exactly the prophecy that God gave Pastor Chad. Imagine delivering that prophecy. Okay, I don't know if I'd tell someone if that's something that the Lord gave me, and take a lot of boldness to say something like that. And Tim's okay about it. He's recon- he reconciled with dad, his dad before he passed, and like I've talked to him about it, and he's he's okay. Uh, but the point is, there is sin as a believer that can lead to death. That the Lord just says, "Hey, <laughs> the wages of sin is death, and, and, and the sin that's in your life is causing harm not just to you, but the people around you." I'm just going to take you home. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, we don't know if that's what's the case. If that's the case in this text, that if their sin was a sin that led to death, or um, whether they were saved or not. But the point is that God was setting a standard of purity. He's saying, hey, listen, this is how things are going to operate in the early church. I'm calling for this standard. If you're going to lie and deceive and cause division in the church, then that's not going to fly with me. See, this wasn't a standard, though, that God just set now. This was a standard that God had set in the past. Let me show you. It's Psalm 101. In Psalm 101, verse 7. 101 verse 7, it says this. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. God says if you're going to live a life of deceit, if you're going to live a life of lies, you're not dwelling in my house anymore. We're not having that. Why? Because he's a good father and he sets a standard. And it's not just like, oh, he, he accepts it all. Like it's Yes, there's grace, there's forgiveness, but he's not okay when we have deceit in our lives and we're trying to live in his house. Just, that's not going to fly here. You don't get to be in my house if that's the way that you're going to live. See, God sets a standard. And we when we choose a, a life of deceit or a life of compromise... We shouldn't be surprised when God chooses us to make an example out of us. That's what he's doing with Ananias and Sapphira. He's making an example out of them. This isn't going to be okay. This isn't going to work, okay? We've got to stop this where it starts because we don't want it to continue. Now, this isn't the first time that God uses people to make an example out of, specifically in the context of the sin of deceit. We remember one of our good friends, Jacob, right? Jacob from the Old Testament uh, if you've been reading the chronological Bible, we were, uh, in it, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago now. Now we're in Exodus. Uh, but we were going through Genesis just before Job and, and we read about Jacob and we see Jacob was known as a deceiver. Why? Because he deceived people. He lied to people all the time. And so God has this encounter with Jacob and Uh, Genesis chapter 32 and and it says that God wrestled with Jacob they were physically wrestling okay he's probably wrestling with actually Jesus all right so he's physically wrestling with God and God asks Jacob a question what was that question what is your name is God asking Jacob a question uh, asking him what his name is because he doesn't know like Yes. No. God knows all things. He knows what Jacob's name is. There's a point behind the question. The reason he's asking Jacob the question is to bring him back to the root of his sin, the root of his deceit. What was that? Remember, when Jacob pretended like he was Esau and he went to his father Isaac to, to, to get the birthright, right? He was deceiving his father to gain the birthright. And Isaac said, what is your name? Jacob said, my name is Esau. That's where his deception started. That's the first time that we see the deceit of Jacob. What God was doing was trying to get to the root of the problem. This is where your deception started. We need to address this issue before we can move forward. If we don't address the root, the sin's just going to continue to grow. And what happened with that story in Exodus chapter 32? Jacob said, yeah, my name is Jacob. I think he got the point. But just to make sure he got the point... God crippled him. God crippled him to make sure he learned his lesson that he wouldn't fall back into that deceit anymore. See, when we choose to live lives of deceit, we can expect at the very least to be crippled. At the very least, to God give us the consequence of crippling us. And I'm not speaking physically, I'm at least speaking spiritually. For Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't just crippled, they were killed because of the deceit that was in their life. Acts 5, verse 11 So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So God accomplished his purpose in dealing with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Hey, I I want you guys to know what my standard is. So great fear came upon all the people. So they're walking out the standard that God had called them to. Acts chapter 5 verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by night fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the disciples, they're performing signs and wonders and healing people. If you remember, they asked for this power in Acts chapter 4 verse 30. They prayed this prayer after the Sanhedrin persecuted them. And they said, hey, God, give us, grant us the power to continue to perform these signs and wonders. But they weren't doing it so that people would look at them like, wow, you miracle worker, you healer. They were doing it because they saw God's pattern. He was using the physical healings to bring forth spiritual healing. He was using the physical healings to get people's attention to hear the gospel. So they knew that God was going to use these miracles to make himself known. So they're performing these miracles. And it says that the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Despite the enemy's efforts to cause division in the early church. What do we see? God keeps multiplying the church. And it was the enemy that was working through Ananias and Sapphira. It says, Peter says, Why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? The enemy was at work attempting to destroy the church, but God continues to multiply His church. Point number two. What the enemy uses to divide, God uses to multiply. What the enemy uses to divide, God uses to multiply. The enemy is trying to inspire division in the early church. Both division and destruction. But God is using these things to unite the church. Think about it. The fear of the Lord came upon the people, so now they have greater fear. They have greater character. They have greater unity because they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They knew God wasn't playing games with this early church. This actually strengthened the church. We'll see this theme throughout the book of Acts. You may have heard it said like this before. Wherever there's an act of God, it's followed by an act of the enemy, only to be later followed by a greater act of God. And we're going to see that pattern. God's going to do something, multitudes get saved, then the enemy's going to come in, try to destroy, try to cause division, and then God's going to just trump them and blow them away and do something greater than the enemy did. See, the enemy, despite its efforts to destroy the church from the inside out, in the outside in God still multiplied his church This is also true in our lives our most devastating experiences when the enemy's just attacking us brutally ruthlessly we can look at that and say God why are you allowing these things to happen but at the end of the day when the trial's over when we're able to look look back we will recognize that God was using all these things for good I'll Tell you a story Remember our friend Joseph from Genesis. He didn't have it easy, right? Yeah, he was the favorite favorite son. He had the coat of many colors. Yeah, all that. But his brothers hated him, it said. His brothers actually hated him so much so that they sold him as a slave. So he becomes a slave at Potiphar's house. And as he's being faithful to do what Potiphar asks him to do, what happens? Potiphar's wife accuses him of sleeping with her, actually raping her, if you will. This is a false accusation. Joseph never did this, but because this accusation was from Potiphar's wife, he gets thrown in prison, so he's in prison. What? You're the favorite son? Now you're in prison? You didn't do anything to deserve this, yet this is happening. Well, God needed Joseph to be in prison, to be able to interpret the dreams um, of the servants of Pharaoh, which ultimately led to an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which led to another opportunity... To save his whole family. To save all of Israel. So that God could complete the promise that he made through the Israelites. And then Joseph realizes this that at the end of the story, if you remember. In Genesis chapter 50. 50 his brothers, once their dad dies, they, they're like, oh man, Joseph's gonna get us now. He, he was, he wasn't coming after us because dad was around, now dad's dead, he's gonna come get us, and he's the most powerful man next to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, no, no, no. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. He said, hey, no, 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 all that horrible stuff that happened to me, I know God used it for good. Think about it. If that stuff didn't happen, we wouldn't be able to endure the famine. We would have died in Canaan. None of this stuff would have happened. The promise wouldn't be fulfilled of the Messiah coming on the scene. The point is that God uses even the spiritual warfare, even the enemy's attempts to divide us and destroy us, he uses those things to build us, to grow us, and ultimately to multiply us. That's exactly what's happening in the text. Now, something interesting that comes up here, if you look back at verse 15, Acts chapter 5 verse 15, it says that at least the last sentence, or last part of the sentence, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Okay. So it was Peter's shadow healing people? We don't know. It could have. And the fact that Luke's talking about it suggests that maybe it was, but it doesn't say that uh, Peter's shadow actually healed anyone. Uh, regardless, it wouldn't have been Peter's shadow that healed anyone. It would be God using Peter's shadow. Now, this is kind of a weird thing. Okay, We see some of these other weird things that happen in the early church, but also happened with Jesus. If you remember that woman that was bleeding for, for 12 years in Mark chapter 5, she reached out after Jesus and touched her garment, and immediately it says she was healed. Immediately, in that very instant did the garment healer? No, it was the power of God. Jesus even says, the pow- my powers left me. It was his power that healed the woman. So we do see that God will use some very strange things to bring healing into people's life. But ultimately, what he's doing with those strange things, whether it be Peter's shadow or uh, Paul's cloak or a garment, they're actually an object to express faith. People aren't putting their faith in the shadow or the garment or the cloak. They're putting their faith in God. And this is just an opportunity for them to act in faith. I can put feet to my faith. I believe the Lord can heal me through any means. I know it's the Lord that's healing me. He's done this in the past. Maybe he'll use this to heal me. But it's an opportunity for people to physically express faith. Acts chapter 5 verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this light." See what the enemy attempted to do? First he tries to get them inwardly by attacking some of the people that were part of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, because they continue to multiply and share the gospel, now the enemy imprisons, imprisons them, the enemy working through the religious leaders. But as the enemy attempts to bind them, what happens? God frees them through an angel. There's the third point. The enemy can't bind what God has set free. The enemy can't bind what God has set free. The enemy attempts to shut them up, he attempts to bind them, he attempts to imprison them, but it only lasts for a short period of time because God ends up freeing them. In John chapter 8, verse 36, it says, whom the sons set free is free indeed. If we're truly the sons, then we've been set free. Don't believe the lie that you're still in bondage to the things that the Lord delivered you from. That's not true. He says, I freed you from that life. I freed you from that past. I freed you from your sin. You don't have to do it anymore. But God, He doesn't just free the apostles for freedom's sake. He frees them for a purpose. Look at the purpose. It says in verse 20, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. God hasn't set us free just so that we can do whatever we want, okay? God has set us free so that we can live for Him. Because that's where freedom exists, in living for Jesus. When we think, oh, I'm going to accept the gospel and still live the same life I was living, what we're doing is just going back to the bondage that God already delivered us from. He says, whom the Son set free is free indeed, but that freedom exists within a relationship with God that is expressed through obedience he says i set you free so that you can go share the gospel in the temple that you can continue to live for me that you can continue to do my work see the angel gave him a choice he gave him direction this is what god's freed you for so you can share the gospel and live the gospel but you guys do what you want the disciples they could have fled could have been like, man, I'm, I'm uh, uh, done with this persecution. We've already been arrested twice. I don't want it to happen again. I know it's just going to get worse and worse. I'm out. But that's not what they did. They did exactly what the angel asked them to do from dire- direction from the Lord. They chose to walk in their freedom. See, freedom is also a choice. Yes, it's a gift that God gives us, but it's also a choice. We can choose to walk in freedom or we can choose to walk in bondage. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Galatians 5 1, he says, Do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Again, meaning you're already entangled in this bondage. Don't go back to the bondage. The Lord freed you from all of that. Sometimes the enemy can convince us that we are bound, that we are imprisoned, that we're hopeless, that we're helpless. But none of that stuff is true. The truth is that we're free in Christ as we choose to operate in that relationship, choose to pursue Him in that fellowship. There's freedom that exists in there. The only bondage that we experience is bondage that we put ourselves in. We only imprison ourselves. God doesn't put us in that prison. The disciples are freed from this prison to share the gospel. That's exactly what they do in verse 21. It says, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and and not... Find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the Captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Look what happens: The angel frees them from the prison. The people find out like, "Wait the guys are missing. Oh, those are the guys that we had in prison, and now they 're preaching the gospel in the temple. So they go arrest them again, it says they took them without violence. they brought them before the religious leaders. The disciples don't struggle. They don't run. Why? I believe because they knew God was going to deliver them again. See, faith builds on faith. Because I've seen God deliver me in this capacity back when, I know He's going to do the same thing again. It's what we were singing earlier. You made a way where there's no way, and I believe that you can do it again. I believe you will do it again, because that's who you are. You're faithful in the past. You're faithful in the present. You're faithful in the future. So they're arrested. Look what happens. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. In their frustration, the religious leaders attempt to confront The apostles again and basically say the same thing. Why are you still preaching in the name of Jesus? Well, Peter and John told them we're going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. This shouldn't have shocked them. But they say your doctrine has filled all of Jerusalem. They're saying it with a negative connotation. But what the disciples are hearing is a positive affirmation, right? This is what Jesus told them to do. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. First, you're going to go out into Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So they hear,s wow, okay, so the gospel's getting around, right? We're filling Jerusalem with the doctrine of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were doing what they were supposed to do. And as they confront the apostles, they threaten them again not to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter gives them a similar spot response as he did back in chapter 4. And he says in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. But I thought we were called to submit to authority. Doesn't the Bible teach that? Yeah, the Bible teaches that. But this gives us further clarity. We're called to submit to the authority of man, whether we agree with them or disagree with them. unless that authority asks us to sin. That authority asks us to sin, then yes, we should obey God rather than men. If anyone ever tells you, and if this country hopefully never happens, but if there comes a point in this country where people say you can't preach Jesus anymore, and it has happened in some arenas, right? Don't listen to them. You don't have to. You have my permission. You have God's permission, okay? Continue to share the gospel. Continue to live for the gospel. If anyone is trying to shut the mouth of someone that's sharing the gospel, that's a work of the enemy. You won't see people do that with Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. Why? Because those names carry no power. But there's power in the name of Jesus, and the enemy is threatened by that name. So he always tries to shut the mouths of people that are sharing the gospel. We shouldn't be shocked when it happens, but when it happens... Don't get fearful and say, hey, well, this man told me I can't do this. I don't care what that man told you to do. We see in the Bible it is taught that God would have us continue to share, to continue to live out the gospel despite the consequences. And in that text and context, we don't have to submit to authority when they tell us to sin. Acts chapter 5, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So instead of accepting the gospel and recognizing, like Peter just shared the gospel, like you killed Jesus, okay? But there's an opportunity. There's a way out. There's grace. And they just get mad. This is their pride, their stubbornness, their self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus. I'm good. put my faith in my works. I'll put my faith in myself. I don't need to put my faith in some guy that's dead. This is foolishness. They have an opportunity to accept the gospel but because of their anger and their pride they're going to resist this and this resistance is ultimately going to cost them their salvation because they're prideful and stubborn. So it says in verse 34, then one and the council stood up a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So Gamaliel, as it says, highly respected teacher, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, uh, he was Paul's mentor. He raised up Paul, we'll see later on. Um, so very highly revered man. People listened to what he had to say. So the religious leaders are, of course, going to listen to what he has to say. Verse 35, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodias... "...rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Point number four, the enemy can't stop what God has started. The enemy can't stop what God has started. In, in Gamaliel, though he's a Jew, okay, he, he recognizes this. There's nothing you can do to stop this thing if it's from the Lord. Your best efforts are basically futile, are useless because... God will have his way. And this is also true in our lives. The enemy can't stop what God has started in your life. Sometimes he will try to convince you that he can. Okay, You're never going to change. You're never going to be complete. God's never going to finish the work that he started in you. Maybe you experience some, some uh, short-lived, uh, some change in your life in the beginning, but you're not going to change anymore. God, God can't do anything else with you. That is not true. The enemy can't stop what God has started. God promises us this through the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. He says being confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you. Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That because our God. Father is so good that he's so loving he says i'm never going to give up on you i'm going to keep working on you until jesus comes back or until i've perfected you i'm never going to stop i promise you i will complete the work now there's another truth here the enemy can't stop what god has started but we can what do i mean god still gives us free will we have a choice each and every day as to whether or not we choose to walk with Jesus or not. We have a choice each and every day. Whether we choose a, a life of sanctification or, or, or a life of, of backsliding over and over again. See, the Lord will always give us a choice. He will complete the work as long as we're walking with Him. But we choose to. If we choose not to walk with them, then how is He supposed to do the work? If I choose to live my life over here apart from Jesus Christ, how is He going to complete that work in me? We see this example with the man referred to as the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has this encounter with this man. The man asks him, "What do I? What do I need to do to enter eternal life?" Jesus says, "Keep the commandments." He's leading them to truth, and. The man says, Well, I basically kept all the commandments, at least the ones that pertain to my relationship with men. And Jesus says, Oh, that's great. Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and then follow me. Why was he asking him to do that? Jesus wasn't concerned with the possessions, he knew the man made possessions his idol. He was following after his God, which was the God of money, materialism. It wasn't the God that created him. So he says, you can follow after those things or you can follow after me, but it's not going to be both. You have a choice. And what was the choice that the rich young ruler made? He says, you walked away sorrowfully because he had great possessions. He didn't want to give up his God. He didn't want to choose Jesus' God over his other God that he grew to love so much. So he walked away sorrowfully. See... He didn't want the Lord to start that work. Sure didn't want the Lord to complete that work. And we have that choice as well. Yes, it's the Lord's doing the work, but we have responsibility in it too. If we don't choose to be a part of that work or accept that work, then how can he complete the work? Gamaliel realizes that whether this is a work of man or a work of God will determine the outcome of it. This is also so true in the church that I've learned the hard way. <laughs> you find out if something's a work of man if it comes to nothing, okay? And there's things that I've done tra- transparency moment, okay? There's decisions that I've made that that were good ideas, okay? That I thought, "Hey, this is spiritual. This is a good idea." And guess what happened? Some of these things came to nothing. Why? Because they weren't from the Lord. I'll give you an example. I used to do a a weekly, every Sunday we'd have a leadership prayer meeting. And after about four Sundays, I was the only one at the meeting. And I'm going, oh man, uh, maybe this isn't working out. Well, what I realized is I'm basically the only full-time person here. Everyone else is either part-time or volunteers. And I know it gets really hard for people that have other jobs and family time and all these different things to to have all these extra things going on each week. And at first I was a little frustrated, but then I realized, wait a minute, if this was from the Lord, that wouldn't happen. So it helped me really understand the importance of seeking God for direction and confirmation. Is this of you? Okay. Let me give you some examples of that. Our corporate prayer thing, which keeps growing and growing. The fasting thing once a month. The home groups. All of that has been confirmed by the Lord. And the Lord's blessing it. Why? Because it's a work of God. People come to me with good ideas all the time. The great ideas. You know what I tell them? Prove to me that God's in this. At least convince me that God's in this. Because if this is just your good idea or work of man, I don't care how good of an idea it is. It ain't coming to anything. But if this is from the Lord, now we got something to talk about. The Lord's moving. The Lord's doing something. He'll make that thing prosper. Gamaliel understood this. If it's from good, from God, it's going to turn out good. We'll finish here. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, (laughs) they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the religious leaders, they can't just let it go. They got to let the disciples go with a beating. But we see the enemy's beating was God's building. God was building them up through this beating. This is the fifth and final point. The enemy's beating is God's building. The enemy's beating is God's building. And in other words, the enemy's process of beating us is God's process of building us. Okay? And they get this. The council beats the disciples, tries to beat them into submission, beat them into silence. And what do they get in response? Rejoicing <laughs> that they get to suffer like their Lord did. Now. They're likely not rejoicing in the fact that they're getting beaten. It's likely more spiritual than that. Okay, We're like Jesus because we got beaten. They recognize by the power of the Holy Spirit that as they suffer, they're able to identify more closely with their Saviour. They get it. Oh my gosh, this is the point of suffering. This is the process of suffering. God uses these things. And yes, I get to suffer like Jesus, but I know Jesus is doing something in me through this suffering. This suffering is not in vain. And the more I suffer for the sake of the gospel, the more I understand Jesus Christ. See, the disciples, they're getting this. And they continue to preach the gospel. And the only reason they're able to do this is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Lord's promise. You're going to receive the Lord's promise. You're going to receive the Spirit. It's going to empower you to bear witness, literally to bear witness unto death. To bear witness of the gospel, even if it costs you your life. That's the expression in the Greek there. So not only do they have the power to preach the gospel regardless of the consequences, they have the right perspective. They weren't moved by the challenges. They weren't moved by the trials. They weren't moved by the consequences. They embraced the challenge. They embraced the trials. Why? Because they knew the Lord was using those things to grow them in their relationship with God. So they embraced them. They rejoiced in them. Not the fact that they went through a trial, but the fact that the Lord loved them enough to take them through something that would drive them to the feet of Jesus and grow them in a deeper relationship with Jesus maybe some of you are going through challenges right now and this is where we'll close what's your perspective about those challenges what's your perspective of the Lord behind those challenges are you rejoicing at an opportunity to get closer to Jesus are you falling into and and we can do this easily the the self pity the, the woe is me Man, I got it really bad right now, and I know there are people in this room that that are struggling, that are going through so many hard times, but the point is by the power of the spirit we can have the right perspective. We can recognize like the disciples, the enemy's trying to beat me down, but God is using this to build me up. Because his strength is made perfect in weakness. So the weaker I am, the stronger I get to be in God. If I don't embrace the weakness and embrace the beating and embrace the trial, my strength is in myself, and that's a strength that won't last. Everything the enemy uses here to divide the church and destroy the ch- church, God uses to empower the church and multiply the church. This isn't just true in the church, this is true in our lives. We've got to recognize that all the opposition, all the trials, all the beatings, all the turmoil, all the hardship, all the stress, every bit of it that the enemy is using to destroy us, God sees as a tool to build us up, to grow us because He loves us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can trust that You make all things work together for for good. Uh, To those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. God, I pray that these truths would reside in our hearts, that we would trust you despite our circumstances, Lord, that we, like the early church, would be able to operate in the power of the Spirit, to, to preach when it costs us, to have the right perspective uh, when, when, when it's hard, Lord, that we would see your goodness constantly in our lives, that we would truly believe and know that you're a good Father that loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.